Buenos dias, hermanos y hermanas. Good morning, brothers and sisters. I give you greetings from your brothers and sisters uh, in Peru this morning. I don't know if you consider this, but when we gather to worship every Sunday, we're literally gathering with people from all over the world, from every, almost every tribe, tongue, and language, and we're all gathering before the same throne. Um, and this past year, uh, my wife and uh, my daughters, we have moved back to America, um, and we're under a great transition, and it's been harder than uh, we anticipated. We were told that it was a, it's a difficult transition when you come, not just for a furlough, you know, and you're going back, but when you move back, moving back into the life of an American life. And um, the goal of every missionary is to work themselves out of a, of a job, and that seems to be what has happened, for at least for our sake and our family. And we're, I'm, I'm happy about that, and it's been, I'm glad that that's happened, but I'm also sad uh, because it was not an easy decision for us to come back to the United States because we have a lot of love, many friends in, uh, in Peru. And, and so we uh, said our goodbyes, and, uh, and now we're in this season of transition. And this morning, uh, I'm, we're looking at Psalm 23, and it is a psalm about transition. It's a psalm about life's journey. And so a, many of you may have memorized this psalm, but if you, if you brought your Bible or you have your iPhone, you can fire up your app and Let's look at Psalm 23 again. Um, and I don't know about you, but when I'm in, when I'm in transitions or I'm moving from one place to another, uh, my soul goes up and down. And I don't seem to focus well in other parts of Scripture except for the Psalms because it mirrors what I'm going through emotionally. And so I was, when I was traveling back to the United States, I went back to the Psalms, and this was one of my regular readings while we were traveling back. And let's look at this very familiar psalm again. It's Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for inspiring David to write this amazing Psalm that not only us Americans love, but Peruvians have loved, and other and Chinese Christians have loved, and Iraqi Christians have loved from all times and all places. This is one of the most beloved passages of Scripture. So, Father, as we approach a familiar passage, would you help us see it in a fresh way? Would your Spirit now breathe life? into this place and into our hearts, and we may encounter Jesus in a new way. And encourage us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, uh, I'm not going to walk verse by verse through the psalm. 
I want to focus just on a, a few key points and pull out some things maybe you've never considered. Um, and I always love for, I, I have, I have uh, four girls and from four to 12. And, um, and there is, I noticed in the, in the response of reading on the back is, is, I'll always look for these in a bulletin because I like to draw. And so if, if you, I would love for kids to draw anything they hear me say. So if you hear me say something that is drawable and want to show me afterwards, I would love to see your beautiful artwork. And if you don't draw something for me, I'm going to ask you, why did, what were you doing in the sermon? And you don't have to be a kid to draw. You can be anybody who likes to draw. Okay, so let, I want to look at uh, three things this morning, just three aspects of this psalm. We're going to look at, it's a, it's, it's a picture of life's great transition, and we're going to look at life's journey, life's valley, and life's shepherd. And so let's look at first life's journey. And David is writing, possibly later in his life. Most people, sometimes you think, oh, he was a kid when he wrote this before he became anointed king. He probably wrote this later in life, reflecting on his life as a shepherd king. And so it's very autobiographical for him. And I think a lot of people, when they read this, they relate to it because it not only resonates with David, but also relates to a lot of our lives. It's a story, it's a psalm that's very short, but, very, but it reflects life. And, and David uh, was, you know, was a shepherd. He was a shepherd from a young man, probably your age and up, maybe a little bit younger, who knows. But he... Uh, he tended the sheep, and there he learned. He was by many green pastures. I don't know about you, but I, there's something about connecting with God in nature when you're by in the stillness in the, in the woods. And some some of you may have your favorite spots. Well, David obviously had his favorite spots. He's writing about them here, and there he learned how to have intimacy with God in those green pastures. But then he also knew that, the, that there wasn't always green pastures. There was also dark valleys. And in his life, there was a very dark valley of a time where he was under the shadow of death when he was anointed. And there was a really weird time in his life when, when he was anointed king, the same time that Saul was anointed king. So he had these two kings that were anointed, but everyone looked at Saul as the king. And Saul was jealous with David. And you know the story. He was pursued for a long time. Uh, and Saul tried to kill him. And so this was a very dark time for David. I don't know if anybody has lived a life where someone actually was pursuing your life to kill you. may have had a break-in or someone had gone to the point, but for 10 years, David underwent this. Very dark time for him. And then at the very end of his life, he wanted to dwell in the house of the Lord. He wanted to build, literally with his own hands, the temple. And we know the story that his son did that for him. Uh, God designed that for, not for bloody hands, but for Solomon. So in many ways, this psalm also illustrates the life of every Christian. That's why if, you, if you're a pastor and you go to someone who's in the hospital and they're close to death, many want to hear from this psalm. And many of you have read from this psalm to someone who's suffering. And it's a very, very encouraging psalm. Uh, and, and, in this psalm and in life's journey, there are predictable milestones that David lays out here. And I'm going to go through all of them. But what I want to focus on is not... So the first point is that the whole psalm is about life's journey. But there's a part of the journey that a lot of times we don't focus on. And that's in the middle of the psalm. And that's the valley of the shadow of death. And that, and a lot, a lot of most uh, translations uh, 
they, they just don't know what to do with that expression, so they, have, they, they just translate it all out, the valley of the shadow of death. So I want to ask the question now, in the second point, what is the valley? I would love to see a kid draw a valley, a dark valley with death there, a dark death valley. Um, what, what does he mean by that? What does he mean by uh, the, da- the valley of the shadow of death? And I didn't have sheep growing up, but I, I know people who have. And there's also a commentator who's a guy named Philip Keller, and he talks about, he's a shepherd, and he talks about um, what it's like to have sheep, especially in the Middle East. He says in the Middle East, when you're a shepherd, uh, you have migration patterns where different seasons you move your sheep to different places because of, I guess the pastures are greener, different places. And so when you go from one place to another, you have to cross through a wadi. And I was asking a friend who lives close to here if they have any wadis in South Louisiana. He says, no, brother, there's no wadis. You have to go to Texas or someplace. In Peru, there are wadis. And if you don't know what that is, it's just a, a ravine of like a dark, it's a dry riverbed that when there's a flash flood, it fills up really quickly, and it's a dangerous place to be. And, in, and apparently, in over close to Israel, there are these wadis all over the place, and they, they're very scary places. Philip Keller, not to be confused with Tim Keller, writes this, this description. He says, a wadi is where all dangers of rampaging rivers and flood, avalanches, rock slides, poisonous plants, the, the ravages of predators, and the raid of flock are awesome storms of sleet and hail and snow were familiar to the shepherd in these wadis. So it was a very, he was talking about a real place that represented something bigger in life to him. And so there's, in, there's two descriptions of this valley. It's a dark valley, and it's a valley of death. Now death is not just physical death here. It's any type of loss, any type of loss in, in, in your life, anything that you've died to. It's a time when you say it's gone, it's over, nothing will be the same. I, I don't know what the future holds, but I know this for sure, I'm not going back there. That's, that's the death, that is what's going on here. And the other description is it's dark. And... And the darkness is a time when you really don't know what's going on. It's dark, dark places are scary places. You can't see. Things don't make sense. Your mind plays tricks on you. Your anxiety flares up and you make things bigger than what they really are. And you're confused. It, life's a jumbled mess. And worst of all, God is often silent. He's silent in the valley. So it's a it's a place where you've lost something, it's confusing, and you don't know where you're going. And so we all pass through this dark valley that smells like death. The valley might be a divorce, a loss of job, a death of a loved one, an unexpected cancer diagnosis, a delusioning church experience, a deep betrayal of someone you thought was a friend or a loyal person, a shattered dream, a wayward child, a car accident, an inability to get pregnant, a deep desire to get married, a deep desire to get out of your parents' house, or any other experience where you feel like 
someone got your deepest desire and took it up before your face and shot it in the head. Have you, have you been there? If you've lived enough, you've been there. It's, it's a reality of life. It's Psalm 23. It's part of the journey. Um, several have called this season different names. And one of, when we came back from Peru, one of the places that we went to was this debriefing counseling center in Colorado. It was an incredible time. And there they recommended all these books for me to read. Books I would never have picked up for myself. I'm, I would read, I'm much more comfortable reading books about church planting and doctrine, but not counseling, books on my soul, and Sabbath, all these books. And I'm really thankful. So this year I've been reading very differently, different books. And one of the books was a book called Emotional Healthy Spirituality. A guy named Peter Scazzaro, a pastor up in Brooklyn, um, around the New York area. And, he, and this, if you've never read the book, I would highly recommend it. It's a very good book. And in there, he has a chapter on what he calls the wall. <clears throat> and the wall, he says, is a crisis that turns our world upside down. We question ourselves, God, and even our church. We discover for the first time that, we have, that our faith does not appear to work anymore. We have more questions than answers. The very foundation of our faith is on the line. We don't know where God is. We don't know where, where he, what he's doing. We don't know where he's taking us, how he's going to get us out of there, or when it will be over. I hope, this, I hope that I'm not the only person who's experienced this. I don't think I am. Although scripture, all throughout scripture we see examples of this. David, we already mentioned that he was in the valley for 10 years. 10 years he was in the valley. I don't know how long you've been in your valley. And it's not like we just go through one of them. There, there's several in our life. Think of also Abraham. Later in his years, received the promise of the hope of all the nations. 25 years he and his wife waited for her to get pregnant. 25 years. And Moses, how long did he wait? And the literal desert of his life. 40 years. He waited 40 years before God called him back to his next task, back to, to Egypt. We can go on and on, listing character after character. We can think of Job, Jacob and Job and Joseph and Hannah. It's all throughout Scripture. Now, why does God have us go through the valley? Why does he lead us down there? And in verse 3, we get a hint of why he does that. He says, He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That, that verse is right before verse 4, which says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. So it appears what David is saying here is that God himself has led him here. He leads him through his paths of righteousness or the right path that makes, him more, makes us more like Jesus makes us more righteous. That, but that path goes through the valley. In other words, you can't build a bridge over the valley. You can't dig a tunnel under the valley. You, there's no shortcut around the valley. The only way to go through it, the way to, the way to go get through the valley is just to go through the valley. And for that reason, some pastors and counselors have stated that many Christians never make it through the valley. 
there's no really guarantee that we're going to get through the valley. And I was shocked that some have said that around 85% of evangelicals are stuck in the valley. And we call them all different things, midlife crises, uh, the, the, the dark valley of the soul. Uh, there's all these terms we use, but really it's, it's this place where God has led us, and, we're, and he want, has us a purpose for us there, and he's not going to take us out until, um, and that's the last point, we're, we'll, we'll come to that in a minute. But now, um, now I know, I'm coming back to the United States, I'm very familiar with what's going on in America. For every one church that's planted, three are closing their doors. The American church is on decline. And uh, the, the major reason, especially in the South, why they say that the churches are in decline is because people are becoming more honest. They have these, the Pew Forum and different research groups are coming out saying that there's the rise of the nuns, not like women in Catholic churches, but the N-O-N-E-S. The people who are on the surveys are saying, are you are you evangelical? Are you Baptist? Are you Catholic? And there's one little section that says, I'm none. And so they check none. And so there's a rise that all these people are saying, you know what? I'm going to be honest. I'm just not a Christian anymore. And that's actually kind of a good thing. And, they, and usually most people are saying these days that that's the reason why people are, are on decline in, the, in America. But I wonder if, there's some, if that's the whole story. I wonder if that's the only reason why the church is on decline, and, and especially uh, in America. And I like to propose an idea that many do not make it through the valley. Many don't make it through the valley, and it might be possible that many Southern Christians are simply just stuck here and don't know what to do. They've been burned on the church. They've been burned on a version of the church which says the gospel of Jesus Christ is for the non-Christians. But once you become a Christian, you, you can put the gospel away and graduate to more important things, more important aspects of Christian living, like tithing and fasting and discipleship and all these different things, but Jesus has nothing to do with it. Um, I, I know a lot of people who have left the church in America. And you probably have friends and family who have left the church. And they're, they grew up in the church, but now they're not there anymore. Um, and they try to drown out, drown out their, their, their confusion and their pain through all like addic- through addictions, through binging on Netflix on the weekends, maybe at night. And they're, they're looking for all different ways, but they can't figure out why their life is so screwed up. And if you, th- if you think you might be here, or if you know somebody who might be here, I just want to say that it's It's okay. It's okay to be in the valley. If this is the only way, this, if everyone is to pass through this, it's okay to be. It's okay to be confused. It's okay to not have all the answers. It's okay to not have clarity. It's okay to, be, to be, even think that God has betrayed you for a moment. It, for you may, it's okay that you may be depressed. I'll tell you this, it's not American to feel this way. It's not, some, it's not a song it's on television or what the media uh, explains. It, it, wouldn't it be beautiful if the church had more space for people to process like this? To, to, to not, when someone is really struggling, to just give a theological quick answer, but to let them, to grieve with them and to feel what they feel. 
it may be one of the most countercultural things the American church does is to let people grieve in the midst of, of a community of grace. I'm not saying that we should belittle sin or anything like that. I'm just saying that people go through very difficult times and the church sometimes misses opportunities for them to grieve with them. In the most difficult part of the journey, David speaks directly to God in verse 4. Notice that in the sweet times, in verses 1 through 3, he refers to God in the third person. He makes me lie down. He leads me. He restores me. He leads me. But he switches in verses 4 and 5, verses 4, where he switches to the first person. You, you, you may not, that, that, the switch of person is important because he's saying here, it's in these darker times that even though we want to go back to the green pastures where it's calm and safe, in the dark valleys is where we actually experience deeper intimacy with God. Look what it says there. It says, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they come from me. He doesn't have to use the, the, the first, that pronoun twice, your. He's, he's, he's saying that that is where God is. You may not feel him. You may not hear from him. You may not see him, but he is there. And he is doing deep things in you. Now, one of the big lessons that I've learned this year um, as an American, as a, even though I've been in Peru, is coming back to the United States, is learning how, personally, I, I, I'm terrible at grieving. I do not really grieve well. And um, one of the important things they were telling us is that when missionaries come off the field and they're adjusting their life back to the United States, is the number one issue that they deal with is that is undealt, undealt with grief. There's a lot, they're experiencing all sorts of losses that they're intangible. And uh, they said, those who learn how to grieve well, love well. Their, their heart enlarges, have a greater capacity to love. But if you don't learn how to grieve, they, were, they said, they told us, if you don't learn how to grieve, it will, it will come out sideways. And, and for me, and maybe for you, the main way it comes out is through anger, through frustration, through me yelling at my wife and my kids. And Because your soul has to process it somehow. And so a lot of times it's through taking control and getting angry instead of just being sad and crying or, or, or being depressed for a time. And that, that is, we want to, we're told in America that it's, not, it's bad to be depressed. It's something that is the bad thing that we have to all escape. Now, God leads us in the valley to teach us also to, to grieve well. And, and it's in this process of grief that he rewires our affections. That he recalibrates our, our, our life and he strips all these, these idols that we didn't even know were there. He takes us to those dark places of our heart and of our soul and, and he's revealing things that you didn't even know were there. It's under that pressure, under that tension that all the crap of life is revealed. And God loves you still. And he's there with you in the valley. It's a very healing time. Now, the first reason is that he's is for, for righteousness. But I want to also say there's, a, there's another reason, too. It's for resurrection. It's, it's also not just the path of righteousness, but it's also the path of resurrection. Another book they, they recommended for me to read was a book called The Loving Life by Paul Miller, uh, the guy who wrote A Praying Life, if you read that. 
It's a, it's a commentary on Ruth. It's a great book. And he talks about how history is, is not just a flat linear line, just going from point A to point B to point C, but that line is actually shaped like a J. And so it begins with life, it goes down in death, and then it goes up towards resurrection. And he shows us all, th- not just in the, the gospel according to Ruth, but all throughout the scripture, especially the gospel according to Jesus Christ. Um, and we see that all life, of all of Christian life, goes through this J-shaped pattern. And so our gospel stories are possible because God actively shapes the history of our life. And the bottom of that J is the valley. The bottom of that J is the dark place we must go through to die. And he says this. He says, God teaches us to love by overloading our systems so that we are forced to cry for grace. God permits our lives to become overwhelmingly putting us on a downward slope in the J-curve so that we come to an end to ourselves. I'm encouraged, and this is Miller speaking here, I encourage my friend to embrace the downward path, not to push against it or worry about where his feelings were uh, with his life. Seeing the gospel as a journey remaps our stories and embedding them in the larger story of Jesus' gospel. And, he, and so there's, there's several things that's going on here. He says, we don't know how the, when the resurrection will come. We just don't know. David didn't know he was going to be there 10 years. Moses didn't know he was going to be there 40 years. We just don't know. It may, be a, it may be a few months. It may be years. But I do know this. You want to get out. I want to get out. No one likes being in the valley. It's not fun being there. Second, another thing is that we must embrace death that the Father has put in front of us. Because if you don't, because there is no resurrection without death. And that's where people get stuck. They don't want to die to themselves. They just don't want to die to themselves. They want to fight it. But they don't want to die. And they're stuck there. And if we endure, resurrection will come. And Miller says, we can't do death. We can't do resurrection. We can't demand that they happen. But we will wait for them. We will wait. So how do we get out of the valley? This is my last point. How do we get out of the valley? And I just want to tell you, I don't know. I don't know exactly how you get out of the valley. I don't know when you'll get out of the valley. But I do know one thing. I know who gets you out of the valley. I know who gets you out of the valley. And you do too. And he is the good shepherd. He is the good shepherd we read about in John 10. He is the one who who has been through his valley. He has walked this psalm as well. He is, he is not only just the good shepherd, but he is the one who has walked this path for us. He is the good shepherd because he's gone through this path. And he has walked through a literal valley of the shadow of death, a real physical valley where he actually died. And there is no coincidence that Psalm 23 is on the, comes immediately after one of the most amazing messianic psalms in the Psalter, Psalm 22. Do you know how Psalm 22, don't look at it, but do you know how Psalm 22 begins? I'm going to say the words and you'll know immediately what, where, what, what this verse is. And you probably don't associate it with Psalm 22. You associate it with some other place in Scripture. It's my God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? That's, you think that's an accident? The Holy Spirit organized the, the, the Psalter this way? Which Psalm 22 is right before Psalm 22. I don't think so. And a lot of people think that Jesus, when he said those words, he's actually meditating on the whole psalm, of this experience on the cross. He's thinking he suffered this valley so that we don't have to suffer it finally. And he's with us in that valley. At the cross, Jesus had no staff to comfort him. All he had was the rod, the rod of his father's wrath. And it's there that he bore all of that, all the mess that we're dealing with. He dealt with it there, finally. He accomplished it, and he dealt with it, finally. And because Jesus walked through that valley of the shadow of death, we can say with the end of the psalm, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. We can't say that unless Jesus has gone through the valley for us. And the thing about this verse is, surely goodness and mercy... It says, follow me there, but really, it, it, in Hebrew, it's pursues. He violently pursues us. It's not like, okay, kids, follow me to lunch, and you, you know, let's go. I'm hungry, Dad. Get this guy to quit talking. I'm really hungry about this time of day. It's not that kind of follow. It's, the, it's, it's, a, it's, it's when, when I was at Louisiana Tech, and I saw this amazingly beautiful girl across the campus, and I determined in my heart at that moment to pursue her until I found her, until, I, until my dashing good looks overtook her. That's not what happened exactly, but I did pursue her. That's the type of pursuit that God is pursuing, and his dashing good looks is goodness and mercy. And, when, and he goes to you in your valley. You can't run away from him. He's going to pursue you down in the valley. And the good news is that God chases you down, even though you may be running in the darkness and the death of your valley. He is going to chase you down. He's patient. He said, okay, you don't want to die right now? We'll wait another year. Do you not want to die this year? Okay, we'll wait another year. And you may hate that wait, but he's, he wants you to die because he knows personally that if you do not die, you will not experience resurrection. And he is there to prove it. Because he literally rose from the grave. And he, when you die on, the, on that day, three days later, symbolically speaking, you will too rise. In a way you cannot explain. There will be joy that will flood your life. And somehow, he will take you out of that valley. Now some missionary friends encouraged us before we moved back to the United States to take a family vacation. And the reason being is because when you are in, when you're moving your family, packing up all your stuff, and you're moving from one chaotic situation into another chaotic situation, it's just not the best time to process what's going on. And so, uh, God sent my dad to um, to Peru to help us uh, move and take a family vacation to the Amazon jungle. It was one of the best things we did, and we uh, it was an amazing trip. We saw all sorts of interesting creatures, we fished for piranha, and then one of the favorite things we did was we went on the canopy walk. And the canopy walk is a series of bridges and trees that climb up to about 180 feet above the canopy, the, the, the jungle floor. And it was an amazing experience. 
And when we when we went to the canopy walk, I asked the uh, the, the guy who organized these trips. He's like, I have a, a three year old. Can she can she go on the canopy walk? It looks kind of dangerous. He's like, oh sure. There's been two year olds to eighty two year olds who do this. And this is you know if this was in America, this would not be the case. But they let us go with a three year old onto the canopy walk, which was ridiculous. And so we go from the first. There's like 40 different bridges. And so the very first bridge, and the bridge is basically an aluminum ladder and uh, with boards strapped to the middle of the ladder, and then you have all these cargo nets. And they have this safety rope about right here, about chest high. Now, the pro- and so, so if you're holding on to both safety ropes and you put one foot in front of the other, then you're doing pretty good. You can't go side by side at all. And so the problem was is that my little three-year-old Eva could not reach the car, the safety ropes. And all she could do is hold onto the cargo net. And so that just put her like this. And that's just not going to work. So the only thing that I could do was to pick up my daughter and put her in my arms and carry her for hours on this canopy walk. And so, and so she was freaking out, going back and forth on the, on, on the, on the canopy walk. And so I pick her up. And then once I'm, and then now I'm freaking out a little bit because I'm holding on with one arm. I lose my balance a little bit, and I, and I didn't realize about halfway through it that her little booty is above the the, the security rope. So if she flips over backwards, she just falls onto the onto the canopy floor and plummets to her death. And so I'm I'm nerve wracking experience. I'm freaking out. She's not freaking out. I take her freaking out upon myself, and I'm carrying her through this. <laughs> And so, but Eva, she, I look at her and she's having a great time. She's seeing all the birds. She's enjoying seeing, hearing the monkeys in the distance. She's having a great time. She relaxes in her father's arms. And so the next day, when I was uh, at, back at the lodge, I, uh, my daily reading of Psalms was Psalm 23. And it hit me like a load of bricks when I read this psalm. Because I, I was really going through a very difficult time. I was like, God, what am I doing? I'm taking my family back to the United States. I don't know where we're going. I was, I was, it was like God was spoke to me through this psalm. And I didn't hear his voice or anything. But it's like, Alan, you're freaking out just like Eva. And if you don't get in my arms every day, you're going to freak out. Alan, and this is the words that I heard that just, it was a paraphrase of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. He said, Alan, I've got this. I don't know about you, but when someone says, I got this to me, I love it. I love it a lot. I like people taking responsibility. And so when God said, I've got this, I can't tell you how not only encouraging was it at that moment, but until this day has carried us through. When we face all these difficult decisions, about life and mourning the past and looking to the unknown future. God's got this. It's not just true for me. It's true for you too. God has got this. Even though you don't like being on the canopy walk, you don't like being in the valley. It smells like death. So, are you going to let God carry you through this valley? Because you can't do it on your own. And some of you may be running away. Some of you may be there and you just don't want to die. You're like, okay, I, I know what you want me to do, God. I know, I know you want me to do it, but I'm not going to do it. I'm just not. He's like, okay. And he leaves you there. And he, but really, he's pursuing you. 
He's pursuing you with his goodness and mercy. And he wants you to stop running so that you can turn to Jesus and turn from those sinful things. And for others who aren't running and are just scared and confused right now, I just want to let you know that Jesus, too, is scared and confused. A lot of, people, a lot of us don't have a picture of Jesus this way, but before the cross, Jesus was scared out of his mind. And it's okay to be scared. It's okay. It's not sinful to be scared. It's sinful what you do with your, with your scaredness, but it's okay. And every death has a resurrection. And we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Father, we, we don't like thinking about this. But yet, when you speak truth to us like this, it encourages us so much. And so I, I pray, Lord, that if there's anybody here today who are, who've gone through a valley or there right now, would you come with such comfort and grace that they will be able to face their death gracious, graciously? May, may we be marked as a people who grieve well so that we can walk along people in this world, in this broken world, and grieve with them? <coughs> Father, we need your help because this is not natural to us. We're Americans, and we don't like to grieve. We don't like death. And we're humans, and we're sinful in rebellion, and we like to do it ourselves. Help us to not fight any longer and help us face our Savior, and may he carry us through. We ask this in Jesus' name.